heard across the Resonate Regional Radio Network. It's my time, it's my life. I hope you will come along. This is Rural Queensland Today with Ben Dobbin. Good morning and welcome to Rural Queensland today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. It is Wednesday morning, the 22nd of March. A very good morning to everybody listening to us across the Resonate Broadcast Network through 4SB in Kingaroy, 4ZR in Roma, 4VL in Charleville, 4HI in Emerald, 4LM Mount Isa, 4LG Longridge, 4GC Charters Towers and the Hot Country Network. Good morning to you. So much to get through this morning. Colin Boyce, the member for Flynn, will join us very shortly. We're also going to catch up with Mark Harvey Sutton and... Why would you be a principal in Queensland? Malcolm Elliott, the former principal and president of the Queensland Primary Principals Association, will join us as well. We'll have a look at Roma and some big news happening out of Charters Towers with the improvement on their sayards. Uh, if you've missed any of our shows, you can always go to Spotify and search Rural Queensland today with Ben Dobbin and you can get it. Um, so much to get through this morning. This is Rural Queensland today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Coming up, Colin Boyce, the member for Flynn, joins us. And surprise, surprise, Anthony Albanese has broken one of his election promises. I'm not shocked. You won't be either. He joins us next on Rural Queensland Today. Welcome back to Rural Queensland Today. It's my great pleasure to kick off the show with the member for Flynn, Colin Boyce, who joins us this morning. Colin, good morning. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Anthony Albanese has broken his headline election commitment to the older Australians to have registered nurses on site 24 hours a day, seven days a week in every aged care home in Flint in the your electorate by the 1st of July 2023. I'm not surprised, but quite unbelievable, another promise broken. Well, that's right, Ben, and the, the whole issue uh, about providing health care uh, services and indeed registered RN nurses is it's been a tick and flick exercise by the Albanese government and they just do not understand the practical problems of doing that, particularly in small rural communities right across Australia and not just the Flynn electorate. And to provide a 24-7 nurse, you actually have to have four of them on hand because if you cut the day up into eight-hour shifts, uh, you've got three people at work during the day on a 24-hour uh, basis and then somebody's uh, having some time off uh, to replace it in a, in a cycle, obviously. You have to provide four of these uh, qualified people. And uh, in in these small, isolated communities, uh, which have built aged care facilities over uh, a long period of time, it's a, a very difficult task to, su- uh, to supply those people. And the, the government just hasn't uh, uh, recognised that fact. Yeah, why? Why? Why, why? why do they do this? I mean, this is horrific. Uh, well, you know, good question. Why? Uh, and that is because uh, the government is so out of touch with what happens in uh, rural Australia and, and regional Australia, for that matter. Uh, the divide between city and country is getting bigger, and that's because that they simply, well, the current Labor government in, uh, in Canberra here has... Uh, uh, little connection with what is uh, widely rural Australia. Yeah, um, it, it's it's one of these things that they ha- they are very metropolitan, major city focused. Um, they they absolutely um, don't get it, and we've seen this with the absolute fiasco about birthing suites through Gladstone and, and up to Rockhampton. We've seen that. We've seen oh, it. Yeah, yeah it, that has been a, a hell of a mess. 
And well, they can blame the states all they want. It starts at the top. Well, look, the, the whole health issue is uh, uh, a complicated one. And um, again, it comes down to the practicalities of uh, servicing uh, the health needs of, of small rural communities and regional centres such as Gladstone, for an example, um, to have a... Uh, a community in Gladstone, some 66,000 people with uh, no maternity service there is just ridiculous. Um, and this goes uh, to long-standing um, uh, health policy from Queensland in particular where they are supporting the universal health system and not supporting private GP practice. Now, in Gladstone, there was the Marta Hospital there uh, several years ago, which uh, was taken over by the state government and all those GP service specialists that operated out of the Marta Hospital, their contracts weren't renewed by Queensland Health to operate out of the public health system. And, of course, because of that, that's affected their business model and they've packed up and left, and that's the reality of it. Yeah. Uh, Long-time rural GP, uh, uh, Ewan McPhee out at Emerald, uh, I've met with him many times to discuss these issues, and he tells me that there are no GP services now west of Emerald. None. They've all shut. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, It's just a a really, really, really difficult situation. I I, I do think that, Colin, the more we carry on and the more fight we we make about this, the the, the more noise. I mean, we we have seen the taxing of super at a high rate. That's a new thing. We're seeing that potentially some of these taxes that they're going to bring in um, post-passing that they're talking about, there is a lot – of Labor and Green ideologies through. And, I mean, Anthony Albanese is a decent human being, the Prime Minister, but he is being guided by what he believes will continue to hold him in power, and that is absolutely selling his soul about what Labor... Labor was a working-class government. They were about the shearers. They were about the workers. They're going very far away from that belief, and the teal and the green movement is something unbelievable. Oh look, absolutely. So just to touch on the uh, on the superannuation uh, tax proposal. So uh, uh, obviously, when the uh, Labor Party runs out of money, they come after yours. They're uh, notorious for doing that, as we all know. But uh, this affects self-funded superannuation uh, uh, funds, where people have got uh, single asset entities in these superannuation funds. So, for an example, you might buy a property or, or a, a block of flats or something or other and call that a self-funded uh, superannuation fund. Well, according to the rules, you have to value that uh, that asset every year and, um, and and write it down as a book entry to, uh, to show profit. And what the government is proposing to do is to tax that profit, which is an unrealised profit, it's only a, a book value, uh, and impose this tax on these single entity assets that are in self-managed superannuation funds. Well, that's just such a ridiculous notion. It's it, it's just astounding. How can you possibly pay tax on something that you you, you haven't realised? Uh, and, and this is the craziness of it all. Um, so uh, you know they're very good at tax. Uh, the government we've seen the safety net mechanism which is going through Parliament as we speak. Well, that's basically adds up to carbon tax. That's exactly what it is. Yep. Uh, uh, whether 215 of the biggest companies in Australia will be required to um, 
reduce their carbon emissions by 5% every year till 2030 to reach their 43% carbon emissions target. Um, they've put a cap of $75 a tonne on carbon and a, uh, a tax impost of $275 a tonne if you can't meet that. So all the big industries I've talking to, uh, talking to about it, so particularly the, the coal industry, uh, and they'll all be affected. Uh, everybody's wondering where the carbon offsets are going to come from and how much they're going to cost, and nobody can actually identify that yet. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the biggest question. Nobody can give you an answer where the offsets come from. That's that, that that's the biggest thing that's concerning because that, they've got these grand plans, but they actually don't know how it's going to work. Yeah, and well, how it's going to affect agriculture. So they're all looking at, at buying up carbon offsets from agriculture. So uh, big companies will walk out and... Uh, offer, uh, you know, landholders huge amounts of money for their farms and lock them up. Well, all that's going to do is uh, uh, create a situation in rural Queensland, rural Australia for that matter, uh, where small communities will slowly wither and die because uh, the people will literally walk away and leave. Agriculture will suffer a blow of less production. These uh, these properties and landholdings will be locked up and uh, Nobody will do anything. They will become run down, overrun with uh, feral pests and, and uh, invasive species of all kinds and uh, uh, a total situation of mismanagement to achieve absolutely nothing environmentally. Yeah, you're right. You're dead right. Uh, appreciate your time. Member for Flynn, Colin Boyce, doing a fantastic job. Uh, we've got to keep the foot on the throat, pardon the pun. We really do and make him accountable. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, good on you, Dorbo. Thank you. Good on you, Colin Boyce. We'll take a break, come back with more. This is Rural Queensland Today. Wednesday morning, 22nd of March on Rural Queensland Today across the Resonate Broadcast Network. Uh, Malcolm Elliott, a former principal and president of the Australian Primary Principals Association, joins us this morning. Malcolm, good morning and thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Very, very pleased to be with you. Uh, This stat is horrifying, but more than one in four Queensland school principals were physically attacked last year while well, nearly a third were the victims of bullying. And shockingly, it was the parents that are often the perpetrators. I, I, I'm going to say this now. Why would anybody subject themselves through it? I, I understand we need school principals and we need school teachers, but when this kind of statistic comes out, the, the survey found that nearly 47% suffered physical violence and 53% suffered threats of violence in 2022. Now, that's 2,500 principals across the country. Um yeah, I mean, yep. wow, that is just yeah. horrifying. Yeah, well, it, it's a horrifying, alarming. Any any word you like to use about it, um, Ben. It, it, this has been going on for a long, long time. And the sad thing is that we hoped that uh, this kind of uh, uh, data would be going in the other direction because you know during the pandemic and the period of lockdowns, uh, members of the general public saw teachers and school leaders at their absolute best, doing what they do day in day out for kids you know, adapting and, and uh, really providing high-quality learning. And that was just such a welcome relief to hear the praise that was coming. But now, you know, there's a return to this abusive behaviour and really it's just got to stop and we, we need the support of everyone in order for this uh, behaviour to change. Is COVID the reason? Is that how – is it being pinpointed because they were away from the classrooms and, and in some ways discipline? I mean, you can't put it on one thing, but is it a contributing factor? Uh, uh, maybe there's maybe there's something there, but uh, it's more like uh, 
an evolving social trend that is very alarming. We see it in the way that ambulance drivers are treated, people in hospitals. You know, we we see it everywhere with signs up saying, please don't abuse, it's not our fault. And and, uh, not to put too fine a point on it or or to make a a trivial point, just the other day there was a a noted a um, a fish and chip shop where someone was, uh, they put up a sign saying, please don't abuse us because we don't sell chips on their own anymore. Because of the potato um, shortage, crisis. yeah, yeah, the, the shortage. So people's reactions to things are out of proportion, and we've really got to get to grips with this idea that um, abuse is never acceptable. But we've also got to learn as a community that um, you know, if you've got a difficulty with somebody else, try to come at it at the lowest reasonable emotional setting, not over the top. And I'd also say to you, Ben, that, that when I say over the top. The behaviour of people perpetrating this kind of um, stuff against school principals has to be seen and heard to be believed, and most people would be aghast at what happened. Well, I'm going to read the percentages of school leaders subjected to offensive behaviour in Queensland, and, you know, so sexual harassment's 2.5%, threats of violence, 53.7%, physical violence... Physical violence, 46.9%. Bullying, 31%. Unpleasant teasing. I mean, I understand that. Conflicts and quarrels. I, I mean, I'm not as I'm not as concerned, and I, I know it shouldn't happen um, by that. Gossip and slander, I, I think that's horrific. And cyberbullying, 39%. The big things, threats of violence, 53%. Physical violence, 46%. Gossip and slander and cyberbullying, to me... Sexual harassment, yes, but very minor. Obviously, that's obviously. I'm not saying it's, but I'm just looking at that, saying, holy hell, the physical violence yeah. that's been taken place. It, it's 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 criminal. It's a criminal charge. But the thing about it is now is that then you've got to be able to convince people and men and women who are dedicating their life to education, who want to go up oh, higher up the yeah. food chain to become principals. And and with these kind of, what, why would you do it? You you just wouldn't put yourself through it. Uh, exactly, and uh, look, uh, there's no other way to see it. To be honest with you, Ben, and this is causing people to walk away from it. And and uh, you know, uh, we've got an aging demographic in in teaching uh, as it is, but people are retiring earlier than they otherwise would have, which means that we've got uh, not only this issue of the abuse, but it's compounding because our very experienced people are leaving the the uh, profession. Uh, in droves, and that's the only other way to look at it too, and that, that leaves then less experienced people to try to pick up the reins. And, and, and what we're uh, dealing with here is uh, also uh, the responsibility that we've got as a whole community to help people who uh, don't understand quite how to conduct themselves, uh, either uh, as members of the community, but also as parents. And I, I, I hasten to add here that across the country, the vast majority of parents majority of parents with whom we work are wonderful people and there's not a problem but there are just far too many people who themselves are affected by intergenerational trauma and they pass this on to their children through their behavior so instead of saying as um you know i would have been told when i was a, a, a child and i dare say i've got a few years on you ben but well uh, you know something's gone wrong let's uh, see if we can put that right what 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 did you do and expecting a truthful answer from their children, you know, I'd have to tell the truth. Uh, and uh, if, if I didn't tell the truth, then I'd be in a lot of trouble. But that was the way it was then. Uh, we're not saying that, that school principals and teachers need mindless uh, 
uh, obedience. We, we're not, we don't mean that at all. We know that things uh, go badly wrong uh, sometimes and the law is broken and that has, that's, that's intolerable. But what we are saying is that please, to members of the community, please understand that your school leaders are doing this because they really believe in what they're doing, helping to build a nation, but also helping to build hopeful, optimistic, uh, re- really encouraging opportunities for uh, young people in this country. We're not, we're not the enemy. Yeah, I, I agree with it, and I, and I, I absolutely hear what you're saying. Um, to me, I'm concerned though that you know it, it, it's something that the government need to step in now. There is two and a half thousand principals across the country that took part in the Australian Catholic University's annual principals occupational health and safety survey, um, and it found that physical violence was the it's at the highest level in twelve years. And I, I understand what you're saying in YouTube. I get that, but um, Malcolm. You know, at some point, governments have got to step in. You know, we've got to protect our teachers. Education is the only thing um, moving forward. Like, I, I don't understand, and I mean this, why why we couldn't, and I mean this, try and get some sort of legislation through about this because otherwise we are going to lose everything. Well, I agree with you. I think that um, uh, when we look across society, all our uh, really important institutions are under attack, uh, and our our education surely is the underpinning of our society, surely. And with all the things that we face from climate change to um, you know, a need for us all to be financially literate, you name it, uh, you know, good citizens, all of this stuff is dealt with in an expert way in schools and we need to be right behind this, uh, our education system, not uh, causing people to leave it because they can't deal with the behaviour of adults and um and children who are uh, violent and abusive. So that's absolutely right. I mean, in terms of government, uh, we've been saying for a long time that uh, this is the responsibility of all levels of government. In, in this instance with uh, schools, of course, local governments are very powerful. The local mayor, uh, the, the councillors are absolutely critical to getting behind the, the effort of schools because they know the families, they know the principals, the teachers, the children themselves, and also our business community getting behind our schools and saying this is really important. This is our next generation of workers, but also our next generation of thinkers, our next generation of uh, world citizens. And we must get right behind this. Please, uh, to our members of the general public, don't put blockers in the way for really, really good people um, to do their work. And then uh, nationally, I, I'd, I'd love to see uh, a program uh, led uh, by the Prime Minister, uh, uh, Anthony Albanese. We've got a, a terrific new Minister in, of Education in Jason Clare who is right on board with all this. But I think that we need to take these messages to the public in the most powerful ways that we can. We need advocates who are uh, high-profile public figures. We need advocates who are low-profile, quite humble uh, members of the public, saying that we all are right behind our schools. We have got to make a cultural, social change. I agree 100%. I agree 100%. Harrowing is an understatement when I hear these kind of situations. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. You're welcome, Ben, and thank you so much for your interest. Um, You and your radio station and your program are absolutely uh, critical to all this, and I thank you very much for your efforts. Good on you. Malcolm Elliott, former principal and president of the Australian Primary uh, Principals Association. Unbelievable. One in four Queensland school principals physically attacked last year. Unbelievable. We'll take a break, come back with more. Things have got to change.
Welcome back to Rural Queensland today. Uh, 6,800 head were yarded at the Roma store sale yesterday and MLA reporting that numbers jumped um, to from Roma, a, a big yarding compared to last week, and that was due to rain. The quality was good on most of the cattle sourced from local areas with a handful of Western Queensland cattle. Crossbred restockers steers met with good competition from central Queensland. However, the pressure from the southern markets affected prices of those British cross yearlings. Feeder cattle followed a similar trend, uh, with cattle generally softening around that 20 cents. Now, I don't want to talk it down, but it was certainly cheaper. Increased numbers of lightweight steers to restockers under 200 saw prices lift to 536 to average 505, with lightweight restocker steers 200 to 280, losing eight cents to top at 530 to average 473. Restocker steers lost ground, selling to 460 cents to average 414. Medium weight restocker steers uh, also saw prices ease with prices to top at 400 and average 375 off feeders, average 369. Heavy feeders topped at 372 to average 358. Lightweight sea muscle restocker heifers sold to 350 and most around that 311 while those um, with the processors average 285 and restocker heifers, um, 330 to 400, made around that 334 to average 315. Growing steers over 600 to processors lost 40 cents, uh, 309 to average 288. Heavy heifers uh, sold to 276, averaging 261. Medium cows uh, sold to 261 to average 248. And good heavy cows eased 18 cents to 270. Um, and the market report, that was uh, reported from Sam Hart. Um, we will try and get in contact in the next couple of days uh, with some people that obviously um, there is some concern at this market's opening. Um, so good news, Charters Towers Council, and this was being reported out of the newsroom of the Queensland Country Live, the Charters Towers Council engaged consultants for the Dalrymple Sayards Master Plan. Now, the Charters Towers Regional Council uh, is looking to develop um, a business case, a master plan for investment of the Dalrymple Sayards. Now, obviously, there was stakeholders previously involved, but they are having a planning at the Sayards on Wednesday to view operations and engage with stakeholders to get a better understanding. Now, Frank Beveridge, who we've had on this show, said it would bring many benefits to the region, including positioning the council to capitalise on opportunity of Queensland's beef processing strategy, which aims to see the growth of the beef processing industry. He said the redevelopment would not only grow capacity but capabilities of industry demands. Uh, that would be great for Charters Towers. We firmly believe in investing in this facility. We can deliver additional economic stimulus to the region, improve animal welfare, user safety, just to name a few. So that's a good thing for the people of Charters Towers and the surrounding areas if they are prepared to go down that road, which I think they, they definitely, definitely should. Uh, there's a lot of other news making it, and that that, that seems to be um, the big thing. Obviously, some people are concerned about what went on with Rome being yesterday. Now, can I just say this now, and I and I do want to talk about this, and we talked about this, that North Queensland Shire's, um, the, the rural land revaluation increase, I've had countless phone calls, and this is just, you know, councils absolutely going crazy. 301% in Mount Isa, the revaluation increase on rural land, 290% in Cloncurry, 178 in McKinlay, 168 in Richmond, and 158 in Flinders. Now, landholders are being asked, and, and I mean this, to check their estimates and see if they're accurate. Now, Anne Lay has spoken about this, and we might even talk to Anne Lay just a little bit more about this. This is a disgrace 
the way it's going. Agforce valuer John Moore emphasised that responsibility for ensuring values were correct lay with the landholders, not local governments. Unimproved values are done by mass appraisal, meaning your property isn't individually valued, so errors can occur. So everybody needs to understand that just because a large valuation jump, um, so those people in Mount Isa and Cloncurry should come out earlier than they are and give them enough time to do the proper rates remodelling. Because you've had increase in your valuation, doesn't necessarily mean your rates will go up, but the unimproved land value has caused some dramas. Now, the closing date for objections for landholders is May the 16th. And that gives people plenty of time. We will talk to Mike Guerin. The shires involved in this, so everybody needs to listen to this. The valuations were done last year and were reflective on the 1st of October 2022 and are effective from June 30, 2023. Ballon, Barcaldon, Black Old Tambo, Brisbane, Burdick and Cloncurry, Flinders, Gladstone, Gympie, Hinchinbrook, Ipswich, Lockyer Valley, Logan, Mackay, Maranoa, McKinley, Mount Isa, Noosa, Richmond, Scenic Rim, Southern Downs, Tableland, Weeper and the Western Downs. You have until the 16th of May to object. And so we urge landholders, and I am now. Now, Greg Campbell, um, he says the rate rise may be premature, you know, because of this. He described the valuations as a blunt tool which councils then had to refine. He said rate payers should look at the past for indications on how the council was likely to work out the latest land values. We might talk to Greg as well, but this is a concern and no doubt people are worried about it. But I will say in this instance, we just need to make sure that everybody um, you have to the 16th, we might actually get Mike Gearing on about this tomorrow just to try and clarify this position because it is no doubt a concern and there are people who will be very, very worried about it and I understand why they would be concerned. But we just need to make sure that we get everything done properly. We're going to take a break, come back with more. This is Rural Queensland today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. You're with Ben Dobbin. It's Wednesday morning, the 22nd of March across Rural Queensland today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Rural Queensland today, it's the 22nd of March. Uh, Mark Harvey Sutton, Australian Livestock Exporter Council Chief Executive, joins us this morning. We spoke with Adam Coppy yesterday just about the concerns of producers in the Northern Territory and to David Littleproud around this live export. Um, Mark, good morning. Uh, You were in uh, the Territory last week for that annual conference and there is some serious concern that Groundhog Day is coming back again. Now, we remember what happened with the Gillard government suspension of live cattle exports uh, to Indonesia in 2011, and now we're hearing potentially uh, the concerns that this Labor Party phasing out live sheep exports, um, and we are concerned, no doubt, no doubt you are having high-level meetings with these governments at the moment to try and get a better understanding. No, absolutely, Ben, and thanks for having me. Yes, no, I definitely was in the Territory last week and I just thought that was a cracking speech from David Connolly that he gave there. But what he highlighted was the fact that this is a concern that's really permeating across the whole sector. I mean, the fact that you have a Northern Territory cattle producer saying, I'm worried about live sheep. I haven't seen a sheep in the Northern Territory for nearly 100 years. Yeah. But it just shows the concern that's there. And um Absolutely, we're talking to the government. But the thing is, with this sheep phase-out policy, I mean, people draw a comparison to 2011, but that was always a temporary suspension, uh, and it was a reaction to uh, some things that weren't good that were happening. Uh, similar with the sheep, I mean, they were, we have had our challenges there. 
But this is a phase-out policy that's happening despite the reform of industry, uh, despite there being no evidence and a strong case for it to be phased out. I, I cannot understand why the government is persisting with this. Uh, it's purely political, and it's putting it, it's basically a policy to win a few votes in eastern seats uh, while selling out western producers. They're, and they're going to impact rural families in Western Australia, rural communities, and it'll, it'll also impact uh, the industry across the country. So, what, what um, what's the solution? It, we don't know what's going on. You are holding high level meetings and conversations. And are you getting told something different to what's actually happening? No, we're not. We're uh, unfortunately, uh, Minister Watt. We, we look. We do have a good uh, ability to talk to the minister, but he's saying he's committed to this policy. Um, David Connolly made reference in his speech last week that he doesn't think the minister actually believes in the policy, but his political masters are making him do it. Now, I don't know whether that's the case or not, but. If you look at the, the record of the industry since 2018, the way it's reformed, uh, the sheer shock uh, and frustration that's emanating from across the sector, uh, surely the minister's looking at this going, why are we doing this uh, and, and what's the reason? So we're not hearing anything different, unfortunately, Ben, and that's why we've just got to keep pushing and put that pressure on and say, why are you doing this again? Yeah, that's the biggest thing. Um, um, that is the biggest thing. Why Why can't they just draw a line in the sand? Biggest challenge that you guys face at the moment, is this it? Oh, definitely, definitely, without a doubt. And the, the biggest challenge more broadly is we seem to have a government that's uh, doing the beck and call of activists that are basically against animal production full stop. They are on the record, and this is a numerous organisations, be it RSPCA, Animals Australia, the Animals Alliance, they're on record saying, if we do, if we shut down sheep, well, we will go for cattle next. You know, this isn't just about sheep. This is this is about them trying to shut down animal agriculture. And, and if we give in on this, we're in big trouble, Ben. Yeah, that's the biggest thing, isn't it? We, we could be in a hell of a mess. Um, and I don't know where it is. What's the market like at the moment? I mean, you guys are constantly, um, constantly trying to grow this industry and, and there are new avenues opening up, but I, I, I am at a pain to why the government aren't a fan of this. Yeah, no, it's, um, so the industry is tracking well. Um, we, we're certainly expecting to see an increase in numbers this year. Um, and when you boil it all down, the reason for that is there is no shortage of demand, Ben. You know, the, the reason we have the traders is it suits Australian production systems and it suits the markets that we trade with. They want livestock. It's for fresh meat. It's for cultural reasons. We have systems in place that assure animal welfare. No other country in the world has that. So, um, you know, I think when we're looking at this, we go, well, geez, the trade's going all right. The performance of the industry is going well in terms of animal welfare. Uh, the producer's doing all right out of it because prices are pretty good at the moment uh, and the demand's not going away. So what? why would we do that? Why would we do that to our trading partners? Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Yeah, no, it, you know, why would you? And, that, and then it's the flow-on effect, the kind of drama that it can create afterwards. That's the biggest issue as well. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that, uh, you know, gets a bit forgotten in this, there's, there's around fifty to 60,000 cattle. That's a ballpark figure. Uh, that go on these sheep boats to the Middle East. And a lot of those cattle are actually sourced out of northern WA. 
Uh, so while there is sort of, the minister is at pains to position this as purely a sheep issue, we're not touching cattle. Uh, by default, this policy is actually a northern cattle industry issue as well, because where are those cattle going to go? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, <laughs> they come back in, they flood the market. We need this. It, it, it's a cross. It's a cross thing. We need all of it to to obviously for the industry to to, to fire. Um, you guys are constantly looking at legislation. You're constantly making sure that you know we are on top of everything. Can you see the improvements, Mark? Oh, look, I can. I can see the improvements without a doubt. I mean, we haven't had a reportable mortality incident since 2018. Now, there's people that say that mortality is not the best measure and, you know, why are you just sort of going against the regulatory threshold? The reality is it's the most objective measurement that we've got and we haven't had one in five years. I mean, that's just outstanding. That's unheard of. It shows that the system's working. It shows that the reforms are working. So what, what we've got to do next, the Minister's uh, appointed a uh, consultation panel, uh, but they're not looking at the policy itself. They're looking at how do we phase it out. Uh, but we've made it pretty clear alongside 25 other agricultural bodies that we're not going to talk to this panel about how do you transition. No. We're going to be telling them that the policy's wrong, we don't agree with it, and we're going to make very clear to them with facts and figures and numbers about the magnitude of the damage that this policy would do for the country. Yeah, and rightly so, and rightly so. If they don't know, um, there there is a drama. We really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, and, mate, you're doing a phenomenal job. Uh, we just need to get some clarity around it from this government. Thanks so much for being with us. Mark Harvey Sutton, uh, really appreciate your time. No, thanks for all your support, Ben, and thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Good on you. We'll take a break. Come back with more Rural Queensland Today. Well, that's it from us here this morning at Rural Queensland Today. Hope you've enjoyed the show. We'll be back same time, same place. Uh, when the weed is ripe, keep the headers rolling in the paddock. Ray Hadley to join you next. Ben Fordham to follow. Stay safe on the roads. Till next time from all the team here at Rural Queensland Today. Have a great Wednesday, the 22nd of March. Until next time, it's bye for now.